The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And to help us do that today is a colleague of mine, a fellow registered dietitian, a prolific author, Evelyn Tribley. Evelyn, welcome. Thank you. Evelyn is a nutrition therapist, author, and speaker, and she's written seven books. I know you've got some book contracts underway, but the one book that is probably your most famous has to be Intuitive Eating, and we'll talk about that. But the the one that I really want to focus on today is the Ultimate Omega-3 Diet, because I think that in our past conversations, we've discovered that the omega-3, omega-6 fatty acid story is one that really needs to be told to more consumers. Absolutely. Well, tell me something. How did you get interested in the relationship between omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids? And I should probably back up and say, maybe you should tell us what they are. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, there, there are two classifications of fats. It's like saying there's the, the Smith family and the, and the Joneses. <laughs> yes. And, and, and there's a lot of similarities, but they're very, 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 very different. And, you know, what's interesting, what got me really interested in the omega-6 connection was in my research on doing, um, looking at the, the, the studies for omega-3s. I, I, I was familiar with the background diet in terms of the omega-6s, and I was going to put it in the book. But every scientist I interviewed was so passionate about the impact of that. In fact, one NIH scientist told me, he said, you know, Elvin, do you know why omega-3s are so powerful and why we see all these benefits in the research? And I'm thinking I knew the answer, but he's a scientist, and so I asked, well, why? And he says it's because of what they do against the omega-6 fats, and that blew me away. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a lot out there. I think what makes it really confusing for a lot of people is all the jargon. It feels like you're learning a new language when you're you know, speaking around all the terminology of of fats, but, you know, one way I get uh, physicians' attention when I'm giving workshops, you know, I'll ask, do any of you here prescribe, you know, pain medication or anti-inflammatory medication or inhalers for people with asthma, and all the hands go up, and I'll say, you know what, these, most of these medications work by blocking the effect of omega-6 fats in the body, and, and the looks on their faces just every time is, is priceless. So what happened with regard to our diet over the past, say, 100, 150 years that made this such a hot topic? Well, you know, what, what, here's what's really changed. You know, back 100 years ago, we really ate a balance of fats, you know, approximately the same amount of omega-3 and omega-6 omega fats, and that's the way our bodies are designed to operate. But what has happened uh, is many things. With, with the advent of uh, industrial technology, 
and agriculture. We started creating oils that never existed before by, you know, harvesting and squishing out the oils from seeds. Mm -hmm. The way that uh, animals are groomed is not the right word, but fed to get ready for market. You know, it used to take an average of five years to raise a calf to a a cow for for sale for its meat, and now on average it takes only one year, and what they're feeding them is basically corn, which is devoid of omega-3, high in omega-6, yet in the past they used to dine on green pastures, which were higher in omega-3s, and their meat reflects. It's one of those things, you are what you eat. So the, the cow that eats the grass that gets more omega-3s than their meat and less omega-6, when we eat that meat or we, we eat the byproducts like cheese and, and milk and so forth, we get those, those benefits as well. So that has changed a lot. And then the interesting historical thing is, you know, back during World War II when there was a lot of shortage of foods and prices were high, especially for butter, uh, margarine was just starting to be on the market, and that got to be really popular. So you combine that, and then with a few years later, heart researchers saying, oh, you know, eat polyunsaturated fats to protect your heart. And so all of those combinations have worked as a big, big convergence on dumping a high amount of omega-6 in, in our diet. And now we're eating anywhere between 15 to 20 times the amount that we used to do, and that's why it's so out of whack. Well, what's interesting is that despite the volumes of research to support eating less omega-6 and more omega-3, it's frustrating to me as a consumer, as well as a dietitian, to go into the supermarket, look at a fat label, and not have those omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids fractioned out from the polyunsaturated component of the Nutrition Facts label. And the other thing that frustrates me is that we have a brand new issue of the American Dietary Guidelines, and once again, we see that recommendation lumping all the polyunsaturated fatty acids together, saying, eat less saturated, eat more PUFAs. Are you uh, slightly concerned about that recommendation as well? Oh, I've been concerned for a long time. In fact, you know, it was so funny, as I was doing this research, it, it was blowing me away because what I was seeing in all the research on omega-6s and omega-3s, it wasn't matching the policy that we have with U.S. Dietary Guidelines 10 years ago. And that's when I started asking scientists different questions and making sure I was reading this stuff correctly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's really, really frustrating in terms of how long this is taking. And one way that I frame it, again, because the terminology just makes some people's eyes blur over, yes. if you take a look at the Mediterranean pattern of eating, which is basically for focusing just on the fat, it's, it's olive oil. That pattern of eating has been around for a long, long time, and there's study after study that keeps coming out showing it's protective for heart disease, uh, depression, and all these other different types of things. And so when you have that staring you at the face, combined with some intervention studies that also show it's very effective, it's 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 frustrating. And so it comes down to what is a consumer to do? Because that information's not on the label, and so it's a matter of, gosh, do you have to look at the ingredients and check what kinds of oils are being used? And for example, I've never used cottonseed oil in cooking, and I've never met anyone who has yet, <laughs> because you don't see it on the grocery store, and yet it's one of the top three sources of omega-6 fats in our diet, and it's used in processing a lot of our foods. And when you take a look at the foods that are promoted as heart-healthy and heart-smart, especially when you're looking at margarines and spreads, they're loaded in these omega-6 fats, which I think is really confusing for the consumers. And just a couple of months ago, a huge study was just published in the British Journal of Nutrition where they looked at all these different omega-6 studies. And what they found 
is in the old days, they lumped all the fats together. They lumped all the omega-3s, all the omega-6s. And so when they were coming to these conclusions that, oh, polyunsaturated fats are great for your heart, it lowers your cholesterol and saves lives and so on. But they never looked at uh, a differentiating them. And so this researcher looked at the actual foods, looked at the actual data, and what he found is when you took the omega-3 component out of there, these omega-6 fats actually raised your risk for heart disease, especially for women. And mm. this was a, a meta-analysis study, and it was so profound that it merited a uh, editorial uh, by by the uh, by, by the editor of that of that journal saying this has been a big mistake, and people we got to take a look at this. So. Yeah, it's 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 something that's out there that has yet to be transmitted into public policy. Okay, let's talk about the nitty-gritty. Where are we getting these fats? You mentioned cottonseed oil. What about some of the other common oils in our food supply? And I want to also mention when how many times have you looked at a food label and just seen vegetable oil may contain and then they have a list, right? So you don't right. even know. Okay, so where we don't. Are we, where are we getting most of the omega-6s? Well, the top three sources in this country are um, soybean oil, corn oil, and cottonseed oil. And as you were alluding to, anytime it says vegetable oil with all those parentheses of what else it might be, mm-hmm. you just need to assume it's one of those top three. And so sometimes what I do when I'm working with my clients, because this can be kind of daunting, is instead of having to memorize all the oils and what has what, I have them just focus on foods that contain just olive oil or, or canola oil. And that exercise in of itself is really um, surprising because, like, for example, if you go and just try and buy some spaghetti sauce, it's amazing all the different sauces that aren't using olive oil. They're using, you know, soybean oil of as their course. key ingredient. The good news is these foods are out there. They're available, but it takes some time and, and reading the labels. All right. Now let's look at the omega-3. And, I, you know, you taught me something very important, Evelyn, you said, yes, you know, we look at the ratio. We're, we're taught in our college-level classes to focus on the ratio, but really ratios are very difficult for anyone to calculate. I, I know I don't want to start doing ratios when I go to the grocery store. Having a total milligram amount to focus on or to say, okay, limit, no more than this, I think that's very helpful. So do you have a recommendation on, like, don't eat any more than so many milligrams? Yeah, I do. I do. And it's based on guidelines from the International Society of Fatty Acids, and it's comprised of over 500 scientists from, like, 40 different countries. And what they recommend, basically, is no more than 7 grams of uh, omega-6 fat from your diet in a day. And this is based on uh, many, many, many studies, including the uh, famous Leon Hart diet study, in which, this is fascinating, if you don't mind me doing yes, that. No, gave, please do. These people with heart, heart attacks, they divide them into two groups. One, one group got the American Heart Association Prudent Heart Healthy Diet back during that time frame, and the other group got a Mediterranean pattern style of eating in which the, the total amount of fat did not exceed uh, 7 grams as far as the, the, the omega-6 fats. And at the end of the study, it blew the researchers away because not only did they have improved uh, health, it reduced all causes of death significantly, including you know death from heart disease, where the other group eating the traditional diet did not have those types of benefits. So it's based on those guidelines, and it's based on you know traditional diets that you've seen in in in, um, in Greece. Hmm. Okay, so seven grams or seven thousand milligrams, if you're counting right. up the milligrams altogether of omega-6 is our cap per day. Right. What about omega-3s? 
Well, here's the interesting thing with omega-3s, and I think this is where consumers really get, get confused, and it's real important to know which kind of omega-3 and what amount. And when we keep reading about all these benefits of omega-3s, what we're really usually reading about is the the kinds of omega-3s found in fish, and that's EPA and DHA. These are the ones that are anti-inflammatory, that help with heart health and mood and all different types of things. Now, there's a plant source of omega-3 called ALA, and you find that in flax oil, flax meal, and it's in other types of fat as well. And many times, foods are enriched and marketed as, oh, you know, fortified or enriched with omega-3, but it's only flax. And what we're really running into a shortfall in this country, most people are deficient in the EPA and the DHA. And so what's recommended is that we get at least 600 milligrams combined from the EPA and, and the DHA. And it's not that the, the plant form is, is, is not beneficial, but it's not going to get you what you need. It, you know, in, in the chemistry lab, it's well known that the plant form can eventually be created into the, you know, the EPA and DHA, but what they have found through studies is based on how we're eating right now, that that really does not take place at any significant levels. And so that's why we need to be looking for the EPA and DHA. And interestingly enough, the new dietary guidelines that just got issued this week, um, we're recommending that we add seafood into our eating, which is wonderful because that's the way that we get this EPA and DHA. But to me, the real question comes down to, what if you hate fish? Right. And, you know, I've done a lot of, um, you know, stealthy recipes where I sneak ingredients in. And people love them. And it's, uh, that's the theory with the recipes. And only then do I reveal what it is. But when you start looking at fish, that, that's kind of hard to disguise, you know. It is. <laughs> and it's not like we've been raised on our, on our great-grandma's, you know, fish recipe for yum, yum, yum. You know, yes. passed down through traditions. And so I, I think we're being faced with, a, with another challenge, and that is, finding ways that we might enjoy it or coming to terms for, for some people who really just hate it, you know, and if that's the case, okay, let's find a way that we can get your omega-3s uh, into, your, into your diet for your health and for your brain. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Evelyn Triboli. She is a registered dietitian and the author of many books, but the one we're focusing on today is The Ultimate Omega-3 Diet. Evelyn, I too hear from many people who say, I don't like seafood, I won't eat fish. And then we have the whole vegetarian eating population who say, I don't want to eat fish for ethical reasons. And then there's also the sustainability factor. So what do we tell people who do not want a fish in their diet? Well, we need, we need just like vegetarians who don't also want to eat meat or animal products, they're going to run short in vitamin B12, and so the solution is very similar. They need to find another way to get it in, and it might be through supplementation. There are algae forms of EPA and DHA, and that's what we need to be looking at. In fact, there was a study published just today showing that vegan vegetarians, those are the strictest ones with absolutely no animal products, you know, no, no fins, furs, or feathers, nothing derived from that, that they're actually at a higher risk of heart disease, and, and they're thinking it's because they're low on these essential omega-3s. So it's a matter of finding, then, um, a supplement that you can take on a regular basis. And up to a couple of years ago, it was really hard to find a vegetarian source of EPA, but there are now two companies who, who make that. So, And, you know, there have been stunning studies on vegetarians where they've looked at moms with babies, just had babies, and who are breastfeeding. And they've done these studies where they gave them a lot, a lot, a lot of flax oil. That's the plant form of omega-3, hoping to see that in the breast milk it got converted into the, the DHA, which is really what the baby's brain needs to continue its maturation. And 
that's not what happened. And so I guess the bottom line would be, regardless of why you don't eat fish or choose not to, we need to find a way that you can get EPA and DHA into your diet. Oh, and P.S., I'm missing a significant thing. And if you keep your diet low in omega-6, what that does, it makes it easier for omega-3s to do all the things, all the benefits that they do in your body. Is there a minimum amount of omega-6 that we need? Well, yeah, you know what? Um, Omega-6, specifically linoleic acid, is an essential fatty acid. And the amount that we need is so tiny that... It'd be, it's near, virtually impossible to get a deficiency of it. For example, if you ate just two slices of whole wheat bread in a day, you've met your, your requirement for the omega-6. So it's wow. really hard to be deficient in that. Is that because so, it comes from wheat? We can get it from wheat? Well, sure, because, you know, plants have, you know, there's some amounts of fat in there. It's little, usually yes. in, the, in the cell membrane, but, but absolutely. And nuts and all those other types of of places. All right. Now, you mentioned algae, and I have to ask, because I've seen some conflicting information in the literature, does algae provide both EPA and DHA, or is it higher in one more so than another? It's it's one more than the other. In fact, about a year ago, I interviewed uh, Martech, which is one of the biggest suppliers of, of DHA to food companies, and I asked them, why don't you have an EPA algae, you know, form? And at that time, they said, you know, we're, we're constantly looking. It's just they haven't found a microbe that's cost-effective enough where they can, you know, harvest it and so on. And so I, I think the real question is not that they can produce both. It's finding the right species that produce either one or the other that you can then, you know, harvest and, and reap. So if you are using a vegetarian source, can we assume that most of the omega-3 in that form is going to be the DHA more so than the EPA? You know, I wouldn't want to assume, but you know what? It would have to be delineated on the label in terms of how much you're getting in there. And so that's what I, one of the things I really recommend. You know, what kind of omega-3 and how much are, are you getting? And that, that will save a lot of headaches for a lot of people. But I would say in general, yes, that the... the Right now, what we're going to predominantly see is, is the DHA form if it's, if it's algae-based. Okay. And do we want to talk about the different features that the EPA versus the DHA confer over to the body, the different benefits from each one? We can, and, and I will, but one thing I want to stress, because sometimes when we get in these conversations, people will say, oh, I just need to add more EPA, or oh, I just need to add more DHA. And the bottom line is our body needs both. They work in concert. Okay. And so, for example, when you look at a lot of the mood studies and, and depression, you know, EPA seems to really be the big player on that, about a gram to two grams a, um, a day. In fact, last a year there was a fascinating study that was published in which they took EPA and gave it to depressed people, Oh, actually, let me back it up. They took uh, depressed people, put them to two groups. One group got the equivalent of Prozac, and the other group got EPA. And what they found is is that EPA was just as effective as this antidepressant medication at reducing depression. The part that's really fascinating is when they put them both together, when they added the EPA with the antidepressant, it amplified the benefit. And so that was just really, really fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, and yet what's interesting in terms of structurally in the brain, it's, it's DHA that's in the, in the structure and in our membranes. And there's new studies coming out too also showing that it can play a role in uh, preventing inflammation in the brain and other parts of the body. 
But it's it's almost to the point now. What what can't these these compounds yes. do? You know, between making our our arteries flexible, between blocking the effects of of inflammation, and just making our cell membranes really really fluid. And that's a structural thing. And you might think, oh well, what's the big deal? Well, the more fluidity you have, usually the better our body can 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 operate. So, and there's just more and more that just keeps coming out in terms of what all these. Um, Omega-3s can do. Yes, and I know as dietitians, you know, we, we hesitate to promote snake oil, but, you know, the, the sort of the one thing that's going to cure many things. But uh, in reading this literature and in hearing you speak multiple times, I feel like this is probably the closest thing to one nutrient being able to fix so many problems that we see health-wise in our society. It, you know what, it's, it's really true, and I think the snake oil analogy is a really good one because th- that's what I was wondering. Are we really looking at just some kind of glorified snake oil and, and, and know that the, the data, oh, there's just tons and tons of, of research out there. But, but keep in mind, it's not that this is some magical potion. A big part of what's happening is we're correcting a deficiency of these omega-3s. 85% of Americans are deficient in EPA and DHA. And so when you start looking at this issue through the lens of a nutrient deficiency, then it's like, oh, no wonder you're having all these problems. And so when you correct it, it might seem like a miracle cure, but, but with the deficiency background, then, then it makes more sense. Now, on the other hand, there are some other fascinating studies looking at it in a therapeutic mode where it's not an issue of correcting a deficiency. It's an issue where it's making a huge difference. And some of the studies that are fascinating, there's too little of them to say, you know, this is what we need to do. But there's been some research on um, athletes who get to exercise-induced asthma. And they've given them high amounts of, of fish oil and had a marked decrease in, in, the, in the asthma. There's been a, a level A research on um, rheumatoid arthritis, over 15 random controlled double-blind studies, this is like the gold standard for studies, where they show that by taking a certain amount of fish oil, you actually reduce the amount of medication in half, and it reduces you know, uh, pain, inflammation, and, and swelling. And why isn't this a first-line treatment in, in uh, treating rheumatoid arthritis? Because even though these medications are very, very necessary, they also come with a big list of, of side effects. So it's exciting. It's extremely exciting. And, you know, I remember hearing you interviewed where you were talking about when patients are in a hospital and they are given standard tube feeding, that standard tube feeding contains those high omega-6 fats. Yeah. So when you're hospitalized, and chances are you're dealing with inflammation at some point in, during your hospitalization, Absolutely. Yeah. should we not be reformulating these liquid formulas that we're giving patients automatically? Oh, my gosh, absolutely. In fact, both in the tube fitting, also the IV, where you know it's done through your, through your veins. And here's what's very interesting. In Europe, they're light years ahead of us on this. They're already, you know, utilizing um, omega-3s in, the, in those um, life-saving products. But because anything that you do tube fitting-wise or IV is considered a drug-like thing, it has to go through all of the FDA standards just to get an amount that would even be therapeutic. And there was a fascinating case reported about a year and a half ago, got Wall Street Journal, New York Times on this physician in, in Boston who had to get, go through these extraordinary measures to help save this baby's life. And what he wanted to do was to give them high amounts of omega-3 because the research was so good. But it was not considered um, a legal thing to do according to FDA. And they finally got an exemption and this kid, kid lived, you know. 
Wow. So, yeah, we, that's a big, big, big thing. And what's fascinating is there's been a lot of studies looking at people who have, you know, you know, major abdominal ser- uh, surgery ending up in intensive care, and when they're given a, a formula in which it's high omega-3s, low omega-6, it reduces patient stay, it saves lives, and it, it reduces medication. And so now we're looking at economic factor. And so I'm wondering if this is going to be the first group who might really start making a difference in policy because the, the money that can be saved, not to mention human lives, is, is phenomenal. You know, this is this has a huge policy implication because, of course, we subsidize corn and soy. So no wonder those oils are so ubiquitous in our food supply. You know, they they really are. In fact, I don't know if you had a chance to read uh, Mark Bittman's new. It's not a new column. He's doing a. Um, he's not doing his regular. Yes. Column he did for the New York Times, but he just wrote for their their magazine this food manifesto. Yes. And that's one of the issues that he talked about. You know, is we need to start subsidizing you know produce and things that are going to be you know beneficial to get into our bodies. But you're you're absolutely right. It, it creates this huge uh, conundrum. Exactly. We need to stop subsidizing the foods that are making us sick. The other yeah. thing I wanted to touch on is what consumers see on a food label. So we go into the store, we see a product that's, say, been fortified with omega-3, but the FDA does not allow many health claims that we know to be or could be added to that label. Right. In fact, by the time a, a health claim is, is approved, it's so watered down, it's kind of even hard to get the gist of what it, what it can do. And I think the bottom line for the consumer is looking at any omega-3 on the, on the label, any kind of claims, is, again, looking at what kind and how much are you getting. And, you know, an example is there's a lot of foods now being enriched uh, or fortified with uh, DHA in kids' foods and yogurts and milks and so on, and that's great. But when you take a look at the amount, it's 32 milligrams on average per serving. And so to get that 300 to 600 milligrams per day, that, that would take a lot of servings of that product, you know. And so I would hate someone to buy something like that thinking, okay, I've taken care of my omega-3s, when in reality it's literally just a drop in the bucket. Evelyn, we just have a couple of minutes left. Is there something that you want to leave our listeners with that I may have neglected to ask you? Wow. <laughs> well, I think the bottom line in all of this when we're looking at health and we're looking at eating is we need to keep the pleasure and the enjoyment in, in what we're eating. And so sometimes when we talk about all these things that are going on that are distressing, uh, it, it, it can take some of the, the fun and the pleasure out of eating. But I think if we keep that in the equation that make pleasurable eating a part of the experience, that's a real benefit as well. And I want to direct our listeners also to your excellent website, which is www.evelyntriboli.com, and that's Evelyn, E-V-E-L-Y-N, Triboli, T-R-I-B-O-L-E. So evelyntriboli.com, and you have a wealth of resources for consumers, so I greatly appreciate that. Okay, I've just been given a signal that we have a couple of minutes, so we're gonna, I'm going to squeeze in one more question, okay. and that has to do with the kind of fish that we choose. We know that the cold water fish is great. So many more fish these days are being farm-raised versus wild. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, you know, the bottom line is what are you feeding the fish, just like with what are you feeding the cattle. And what they're often feeding the fish is high in omega-6, and there's been a lot of studies looking at farm-fed fish versus wild, and what you end up seeing is a much higher omega-6 content. And so I would say to that, when possible, you know, choose the, the wild 
Uh, secondly, you know, tuna, by the way, is not usually farmed. And people get hesitant around tuna because of mercury issues. But if you choose the light tuna, that's the lower form of mercury. And if you do it, you know, just have it, you know, once or twice a week, you're really going to be going to be fine. Fantastic. Well, I want to thank you so much for your research, and I want to direct consumers again to your book, The Ultimate Omega-3 Diet. And previous to this, The Intuitive Eating, a revolutionary program that works, making peace with food, freeing yourself from chronic dieting forever, and getting to the natural weight that fits you. And you brilliantly remarked that actually this work on the omega-3 diet really does piggyback with one of your points in intuitive eating, which is honor your health through gentle nutrition. And it does indeed taste good. So Evelyn, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. 